Let's join our hearts together in prayer. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, you are the Lord of life and death. You are the maker of time and eternity. We honor you. We bless your name. We thank you for the privilege of standing before you today, a privilege purchased for us at Calvary's cross. We ask that you would incline your ear toward us and hear the prayers of your people. We ask, Lord, that you would show us your will and have your way with us. We thank you for your unchanging word, and we ask that it would speak to us today with freshness. We ask that we, your church, would be busy about your work. We ask that you would expand the boundaries of your kingdom, that you would draw more and more into the fellowship of believers. We ask you to be merciful to those who have resisted your call thus far. We pray that you continue to woo them and draw them to yourself. We pray that you would make us bold in proclaiming the gospel that you would make us fearless in loving our neighbors, that you would make us confident in obeying your law, that you would make us secure in the knowledge of our position within the family of God. Bring honor and glory to your name through our lives and our attitudes and our actions and our words. Lord God, we ask that you would forgive us our sins We confess that we are inclined always to be selfish and fearful. We admit that we only act honorably and bravely when you fill our spirits with your spirit. Help us to forgive one another. Let us be long-suffering in times of trial. We pray that you will bring an end to this COVID-19 pandemic. But we also pray that you will be honored and glorified in it. And we pray that in this time of plague that we would be instructed by you and that we would be more Christ-like because of this trial. Lord, we pray that you do not let this affliction be lost on us or leave us unchanged. Shape us, mold us, conform us to the image of your Son. Father God, we pray for our daily bread We pray that you would provide us with the money that we need week by week for our ordinary needs. We pray that you would save us from being too rich or too poor. We pray that in all circumstances that you would teach us to be content. We pray for those of our number who are isolated and lonely because of this outbreak. We pray for those of our number who are this day on the front lines of service in this time of plague. We ask that you bless us all and that you keep us in your care. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus, who taught us all to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. 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 So the peace of the Lord be with you this morning. Today is the second Sunday of this COVID-19 crisis here at HVPC. Last Sunday... 
we were able to combine our two worship services into one. And we had a sweet but smaller service. And as a bonus, we had a baptism and a wedding at that service. This morning, however, we are smaller. If you uh, missed uh, last week's service, by the way, you can find that still on Facebook and you can ask Stephen Clark for the link. This morning, the Philadelphia Inquirer reports five cases of coronavirus right here in Lower Moreland Township. So the disease is at our doorstep. Earlier this week, I conducted a funeral of a 92-year-old woman, a mother of one of our congregation. She died in uh, a Bucks County nursing home that was under a COVID-19 lockdown. The family were unable to be with her in her last days. That's a story that is likely to be repeated as this virus spreads through our population and as we reduce our contacts with each other to slow down that spread. This Sunday, we are no longer able to meet in person as a congregation. We are respecting the recommendation of the president that no more than 10 people congregate at one time. So there are, oh, seven or so people here with me in this sanctuary this morning to produce this service of worship, which we are sharing with you electronically. And immediately after this service, I will be praying with people at a safe distance out in the parking lot. We will continue to meet this way as long as we can. Of course, it seems that each day brings new surprises, so we will remain flexible and resilient and hopeful as we serve the people of God and deal with whatever God in His providence deems best to send our way. For those of you who would like to meet with me individually, we can do that electronically, telephone, FaceTime, Google Chat, Facebook Messenger, there are thousands of ways that we can meet together for conversation and for prayer. Each day since this shutdown began, I've been calling members and friends of the church to touch base, to check in, to pray. You don't have to wait for me to get around to you. Just reach out to me and let me know when you'd like to meet and we'll set something up. Special thanks this morning to uh, Christine Boney and Stephen Clark and Joan Clover and John Haynes and Bernie McGorry and Doug Nolan and Rosie Bruce who are here with me and who have made this service possible. In light of the present plague besetting us, I'm going to take a detour from our series of sermons through the Acts of the Apostles, which we started back at the beginning of the year. Paul's letter to the Philippians has been calling to me this past week, and I think it speaks to our present uh, circumstances. And so in the weeks ahead, we will look through this letter together in worship. I encourage you to read it straight through at home. It will take less than 20 me- uh, minutes to read that whole letter. And in reading it straight through, you will gain a clearer sense of the voice of Paul and of the flow of his letter. As we usually do here at HVPC and preaching through the text, we will examine it closely. We will do it a little bit at a time, but I would like you to have the whole of the letter in the back of your mind as we look at each part of it week by week in worship. So now hear our second reading, Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 through 30. 
Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. I love the word of God. It is so rich, and this letter of Paul to the church at Philippi is extraordinary. The first chapter deserves ten sermons. Ten sermons would not do it justice. The Word of God is alive. It is rich. It is deeper than we can plumb. And it always rewards us when we study it diligently. This morning, I'm going to highlight just five ideas from this first chapter of Philippians. We'll probably return to this chapter next week. Here are five ideas. Number one, God's plan for me is always better than my plan for myself. Number two, I can trust God. Number three, I can have joy even though my plans have been changed. Number four, I can be content in all circumstances. And number five, these things are true only if my life has been given over to Christ. Let me repeat those again. Number one, God's plan for me is always better than my plans for myself. Number two, I can trust God. Number three, I can have joy even though my plans have been changed. And number four, I can be content in all circumstances. And number five, these things are true only if my life 
has been given over to Christ. Let's walk through those one at a time. God's plans for me are always better than my plans for myself. The Apostle Paul was a driven man. He was on a man on a mission. Paul had good plans. He had great plans. He had large plans for advancing the gospel and spreading uh, the church. Paul was a hard-working man. He was a totally committed man. He was willing to do anything in his power to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to people all over the world. He was willing even to die so that others might know about Jesus. Paul had met the resurrected Jesus. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was a man of prayer. He was a man of faith. Paul had no goal except for the glory of Christ and the salvation of as many as possible. But God did not give Paul everything that Paul prayed for. And Paul did not accomplish everything that he desired or planned because God had other plans for Paul. And because God's plans were better than Paul's plans. Even if you are a man of faith, even if you are a woman of prayer, even if you are on a mission for God and seek to bring God all the glory, don't think that your plans or your prayers are commands that God must answer. God is not our servant boy. And the confidence of our prayers and the certainty of our plans is no guarantee that what we want is going to be part of what God wills. Because make no mistake, what God wills is what happens. God is sovereign. He is the king. His rule over the universe is total From the great events like plagues and like the rise and the fall of nations and empires down to the tiniest vibration of the least molecule, all of it is in the hands of God. Paul writes this letter to the Philippians from prison in Rome. We know from Paul's epistle to the Romans that he was hoping to come to Rome on his way to Spain because he wanted to take the gospel to the very ends of the known world. Well, Paul makes it to Rome, but he doesn't make it to Spain. He makes it to Rome in chains under an imperial guard, which certainly wasn't part of his five-year ministry plan. But it was part of God's plan. And Paul recognizes, even while he prays that he will be released from prison, that being in prison has accomplished God's plan. We read in verses 12 and 13, I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. Paul didn't plan that. He didn't have a stealth plan to get arrested so that he would be put in touch with people who were in touch with the Roman emperors. That wasn't Paul's plan. Paul didn't pray for that. But that was God's plan. And God's plan was better than Paul's plan. Even in this letter that Paul writes from prison in Rome, we see his plan, his hope, his prayer. It's to be released. He knows that his cause is just and 
to return to Philippi to see his friends. He says in verses 25 and 26 that he's convinced that he will be coming to them again and that he will remain and continue with them. Guess what? Paul might have been convinced that he was going back to Philippi, but he never does. The only place Paul will go from his prison in Rome is to have his head cut off with a sword by a pagan. And if that seems harsh, then let me remind you that as hard as that was, it was God's plan. And God's plan was better than Paul's. In the midst of this COVID-19 pandemic, a million billion plans have been upset. Things that we thought we would be doing today, this week, this coming month, those things are all out the window. My wife and I were supposed to have dinner with the Hindleys last night. Well, that didn't happen. My daughter Mia keeps asking me when she will get back to school. She misses her friends. She misses her teacher. She said she needs someone to make her do her homework because she doesn't want to do it by herself at home. She's been at home for a week now and we don't even know how to plan for when we might start having plans again. What if I were to tell you that it is God's plan... That we have no plans for this moment. There could very well be a spiritual revival coming out of this pandemic. Not because we are all deathly afraid of what might happen, though impending death can be a motivator to get right with God. There could very well be a spiritual revival coming out of this pandemic because we finally are not so frantically busy Like hamsters on an exercise wheel, we're finally not so frantically busy that we might, in the silence, take time to reconnect with God. We might take time for things that are eternally significant and not just momentarily entertaining. Our plans have been totally upended in a way that it is bigger than anyone could have guessed. But God is sovereign. God is king. And God's plans are not our plans. And so I encourage all of us in the midst of this upending of our normal plans to enjoy God's plan for a while. The pandemic has caused a lot of fear. Gun stores are doing a terrific business right now. But what if in the weeks and months ahead... What if this turns out to be a great time of blessing and refreshing? What if God has decided to interrupt our restless pursuit of the things of this world for a couple of months so that we could begin to lay up treasures in heaven? I miss being with all of you. But I really believe that God has great things in store for us during this great shutdown of 2020. Number one, God's plans for me are always better than my plans for myself. Number two, I can trust God. I can trust God. God is righteous. 
God is holy. God is pure. God is good. God is powerful. God is in control. God knows the beginning from the end. God created us. Not just us, but the whole big universe. God loves us. God sent His Son to die so that we might be saved. If we can't trust God, then who can we trust? Now usually, when we're not trusting God, we're trusting ourselves. Oh, trust God. In this time of total uncertainty, trust God. Don't trust Him to enact the plans you have. Remember, God is not our servant boy. Don't trust Him to enact the plans that you have, but trust Him to have better plans for you. And know that His plans will come to pass. Number two, I can trust God. Now, numbers three and numbers four go together. Number three, I can have joy even though my plans have been changed. And number four, I can be content in all circumstances. In Philippians 4.11, Paul writes, I have learned in whatever circumstances how to be content. Are you content? Or are you habitually dissatisfied? We think of life as the pursuit of happiness. And we can't be happy if we are discontent. To be content is a prerequisite for happiness. Discontent is a gnawing and bitter dissatisfaction. We are discontent if we have our hearts set on one thing and that thing doesn't come to pass. And we bitterly fume about not having the thing that we thought that we would have as though simply thinking the thought or having the dream gave us some right to it. As though it became our property just because we had hoped for it or planned for it. One of the bitterest moments in my life was when I was a boy and I went to an estate auction with my father in Neosho, Missouri. Someone had died and the family was selling off the content of the dead man's house. And among the things being auctioned was a homemade feather bed. In Missouri, we called them bed ticks. I think the word in French is duvet. Don't ask me why I was interested in this thing, but my heart was set on it. It was a sack of goose down covered in striped canvas. A foot and a half thick, long enough and wide enough for a good-sized bed. I must have been 11 or 12 years old at the time, too young to bid myself. But my father had a number, and I told him I wanted the bed tick and that I would pay for that bed tick. And I waited restlessly as the auctioneer worked his way through the tools and the furniture and the kitchen utensils and the mason jars filled with nails, the possessions of a lifetime spilled out onto a yard outside a dead man's house. And my anticipation rose and my delight in my new possession grew as steadily the auctioneer and the crowd of bidders dispensed with item after item all morning long. And finally, the moment of truth arrived. Bidding opened at one dollar. I had lots more in my pocket that I was willing to spend. And the auctioneer's machine gun patter rose quickly, and it lasted for what seemed like no more than ten seconds. And then, bam! It was done. Sold. 
For the paltry sum of three dollars to a man in blue overalls, my father never even placed a bid. The bitterness of that disappointment. My father had been confused about which item they were bidding on. The bitterness of that disappointment brought tears to my eyes. It was like a nail in the roof of my mouth. But why? I hadn't lost anything. I went to the auction having never owned a bed tick. Having never thought about a bed tick. And I went home from that auction in the exact same condition, except that I went to the auction happy and I went home miserable. And nothing had changed in my life. My desire for that bed tick and my anticipation that it would soon be mine made me feel like I had been robbed of something when it didn't actually come out of my hands. I had it by rights, I was sure. My eye was set on it early in the auction. I had money for it in my pocket. I asked my father to bid, but in the end it didn't come to me. And I was crushed and bitterly disappointed. So often our happiness and our misery have little to do with the actual circumstances of our lives. You know, of course, that rich people commit suicide more often than poor people. Happiness is the result of contentment. And misery is always discontent. Because of God's providences in his life, the Apostle Paul had learned to be content in all circumstances. Sometimes he was rich. Sometimes he was poor. Sometimes he was free. Sometimes he was in jail. But by the point we meet him in the letter to the Philippians, he's always happy because he's always content. And he was always content because he knew that God's plans were always better than his plans and because he was able to trust God. We don't trust God because he makes us happy. We are happy because we trust God. And Paul's attitude throughout this letter to the Philippians is one of pure joy. He's in jail. He's separated from his friends. He doesn't even have Facebook. His execution is imminent. And strangely, he's full of joy. Much more joy than some of the crabs I see venting on Facebook. Verses 3 through 5, I thank my God in all my remembrances of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Verse 18, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Verse 25, I know that I will remain and continue with you for your progress and joy in the faith. Let's be clear about this. Paul is not faking his joy. All of us have met fake Christians who put on a happy face because they think that it's the holy thing to do. Too blessed to be stressed, they say. Meanwhile, their car is being repossessed and their son is in jail and their wife has run off with the dry cleaner. Too blessed to be stressed. 
That's not what Paul is doing here. In fact, Paul is being honest with the Philippians about the troubles that he has. He's not faking it. But here's the truth. In the midst of the stress that he is facing, he is still filled with joy. He is content with his stressed circumstance. In Philippians 4.7, he talks about the peace of God which surpasses human understanding, which will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. All of which brings me to my fifth point. These things, points number one through four, these things are true if and only if my life has been given over to Christ. These things are true if and only if we are in Jesus Christ. God's plan for me is always better than my plan for myself. If and only if my life has been given over to Christ. I can trust God. If and only if my life has been given over to Christ. I can have joy even though my plans have been changed. If and only if my life has been given over to Christ. I can be content in all circumstances. If and only if my life has been given over to Christ. Sometimes we want to be comforted, but we don't want to be changed. Sometimes we want to be reassured, but not challenged. And a saving encounter with Jesus will change you. It will challenge you every day until you die. No one comes to Christ and remains the same person they were before in Christ. We become new creatures. If you want to remain who you were before, then don't come to Christ. Because he will tell you that you must lose your life in order to save it. Because he will tell you to take up your cross and leave what you were doing before and follow him. In his commentary on the book of Romans, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, pastor of Westminster Chapel in London, wrote this. The Bible has no comfort whatsoever to give people who are not Christians. None at all. Indeed, the exact opposite. The Bible has nothing to say to such people except to warn them to flee from the wrath to come. It tells them that the sufferings of this present hour are not worthy to be compared with the sufferings that they are going to endure. That these are but a foretaste of what is coming to them. That the account of the flood, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all similar, similar calamities are but faint pictures of the suffering that is going to come to those who do not belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no comfort for an unbeliever, none at all. But there is tremendous comfort in Scripture. For those who are in Christ. For those who, by faith, have been united with Christ and will one day spend eternity with Him. For those people, the Scriptures are a constant reminder that God is with us, that God is protecting us, that God has our best interest in mind, that God turns hard things to our own good, that God has plans for us, that God will prosper us, that God will keep us, that God loves us, that God will welcome us home one day. That comfort 
is only for those who are in Christ. For those living on their own, for those who are still following the way of the world, the way of the flesh, the Bible only offers dire warnings of trouble and worse to come. So hear the truth. In Christ, there is hope. In Christ, there is security. In Christ, there is peace. In Christ, there is purpose. In Christ, there is confidence. In Christ, there's a plan and a future made not by human wisdom, but designed by the one who designed the whole universe. How sweet is that? And so let me close this service of worship by asking you the most important question of your life. Where do you stand with Christ? Are you inside of Christ? Or are you outside of Christ? Have you been united with Christ by faith? Or are you separated from Christ by your unbelief and rebellion? This is a question about eternity. This is a question about heaven and hell. Where do you stand with Christ? Has your life been given over to him? Jesus said to Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they be born again. Will you see the kingdom of God? Have you been born again? Where do you stand with Christ this morning? Friends, I ask you to not let the sun go down on you this beautiful day without answering that question. Don't let the sun go down on you without being right with God. And if you want to talk to me about this, if you want me to meet with you and pray with you, you know how to get in touch with me and I'll be there with you in a heartbeat. Where do you stand with Christ? That question is literally more important than your own life and death. Because it's a question about your eternal life. Don't go to bed with that question unanswered. Oh, glory to Christ and peace to his people. Amen, amen, amen. Well, we don't have it in our bulletins, but it's fitting for us this morning. As an affirmation of our faith, the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. Some of you know this by heart. I will read both the question and the answer for us, and may it be an encouragement to us uh, on this day. The question is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Thanks be to God.